This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. It's the spookiest time of year, which is perfect because on this episode of Christianese, we're going to be talking about something none of us want to encounter a cold shadow lurking just behind you. You may think many things about it, but it only goes by one name criticism. <laughs> Is that my voice? Is that my voice? Oh well. It sounds scary, but in reality, it's one thing all of us should really want. And if you're wise, you'll go looking for it. On today's episode of Christianese, Criticism. Most of us feel like criticism is an unnecessary evil. We feel like it's something cowards hide behind or small people use to cut people down. One of the most famous quotes about criticism comes from Theodore Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually does strive to do the deeds, who at best knows in the end triumph of high achievement, and at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be among those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Wait, if he's being a critic of critics, then he's a cold, timid soul? Hold on, how does this work? Well, first of all, Teddy's right in one way. We all know people who use criticism as insults, a way to deflate you so that they can feel better. That's bad criticism. But, and this is the thing, like Theodore the Mustache Roosevelt, we all are critics of something. We all point out fault because things are broken. Things aren't as they should be. Sin exists, and no one's perfect. Every one of us starts out ignorant as a baby. We're learning as we go. And no matter what you try, you'll begin as an amateur. So we all have faults. We all have room to grow. This begs the question, how do we as imperfect people, surrounded by other imperfect people, critique each other well? Well, let's start with 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is profitable. It's going to give you a good return for teaching, that's informing ignorance, rebuking, standing against error, correcting, redirecting effort from bad to good, and training, 
which is discipline and working to improve. None of those are easy. They all demand us knowing what our faults are so that we can replace them with truth and righteousness. And yeah, those things all sound as appetizing as a huge plate of English peas, the most revolting food in creation. But one reason I think we avoid these things is that we misunderstand conviction. Conviction is the feeling that overcomes us when we recognize our error and we know that we are guilty. But if you can recognize your error, then you know where to grow. And the good news here is that God is determined to make us like Jesus. That throughout our lives, he will sanctify us or make us holy. The big problem there is that a lot of us grew up in youth groups where we were told either explicitly or implicitly that if we were good, God would be happy with us and we would feel good. The other side of that is when we were bad, God would be unhappy with us and we would feel bad. The result is we equate our emotional state with what God thinks about us. So we ran from conviction and we cursed those who brought it to us as haters or uh, judgmental, people who didn't understand. The problem there is, if you don't know where you lack, if you don't know the sin in your blind spots, how can you be made better? Yes, conviction feels bad, but here's the good news. In Christ, there is no more guilt and there is no more shame. There's no sin that can separate you from the love of God. You don't have to run and hide from Him. His love for you is constant. Conviction is not a road to separation from God. God is holy. He can't be around sin. So when he points out your sin and your error, he's actually giving you a way to come closer to him. This is why Proverbs praises those who listen to reproof. Proverbs 13, 18. The one who neglects discipline ends up in poverty and shame, but the one who accepts reproof is honored. Proverbs 15.31 The person who hears the reproof that leads to life is at home among the wise. Proverbs 25.12 Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover to the ear of the one who listens. My favorite verse on this is Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend will point out your fault. They'll give you the hard truth even when you don't want to hear it. Do you have to accept criticism from everybody? No. Oh gosh, no. How miserable would it be if you had to listen to your Twitter comment section? Ugh. No, you don't have to listen to everyone, but you do have to listen to someone. The bad kind of critic that we're all so used to will point out your fault and then just leave you. A good critic, a friend, is someone who will point out your faults and then walk alongside you towards growth. That kind of critic is not a person on the sideline. It's someone in the fight with you. And again, remember, it's not just other people who are critics. We're all critics. It's easy to point out flaws. There's no value in that. 
What is valuable is pointing someone towards Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, think of a museum. I'm lucky enough to live near one of the best American art museums in the country, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. I go to Crystal Bridges probably twice a month. I've started talking to some of the docents and some of the security people there, and I've learned that the average person spends somewhere between 7 and 14 seconds on a painting. That's average. So some people, it's a lot less. In that amount of time, whether you're looking at a sketch or a masterpiece, what can you really learn about a painting? What can you ask about it? My favorite section of Crystal Bridges is the 19th century landscape paintings. The Hudson River School, the Pre-Raphaelites. They're these gorgeous, vivid pictures of nature. It would be easy for me to spend 7 to 14 seconds on these paintings. What is it a painting of? A mountain. Do I like it? Yes. Move on. But I really should ask some deeper questions. All art has a message. They aren't just paintings because people didn't have cameras. They're saying something. Most of the paintings of nature in the mid-19th century were made by transcendentalists which believes, in short, that you can find personal meaning and self-realization through contemplating nature. These painters would go out west, make sketches of mountains and plains, come back to their East Coast studios, and make idealized versions of nature to show people so that even if you lived in urban settings, you could contemplate nature just like you were meant to. You could find personal meaning through these paintings. But let's forget about philosophy. The practical implications of these paintings are pretty serious. When you look at these paintings, there's one thing that's notably absent. People. Native Americans. They're just idealized free land. These paintings were made at a time when the American government was encouraging citizens to move out west, to establish American Manifest Destiny, where white Americans would rule the land coast to coast. In a very serious way, these paintings are propaganda. Go out west. Find yourself. That belief created very serious consequences. Wars, forced migrations of entire people groups, innumerable atrocities. Are these paintings aesthetically pleasing? Yes. Are they master representations of style? Yes. But we have to ask a deeper question. Is what they depict truth? It takes more than 7 to 14 seconds. At Crystal Bridges, next to these paintings, are a set of woven, beautiful Native American papooses. They're baskets that mothers would put on their backs to carry their children. It's the curators reminding you who lived there, who had to leave there when the people came in. The contrast between the beautiful painting and the beautiful papoose is a very difficult truth. I know that's sad, so let's talk about my favorite painting at Crystal Bridges, another landscape called Along the Shore by William Trost Richards. 
He was a pre-Raphaelite. It's a group of painters who believed in almost journalistic painting. Paint things as they are. Paint the truth. And this painting is a photorealistic depiction of waves crashing on a rocky shore as a storm rolls in. You can see the light cascading through the waves, the foam. You can practically hear the thunder in the distance. It's stunning. This is what it looks like when a storm rolls in. But Richards added a little bit of flair that's pretty unusual for a pre-Raphaelite. In the distance, there's a small ship just in front of the storm. It's sailing towards the shore to an unseen harbor. Richards is a painter who's going to show nature in the world as it is. So what is he saying? This is the world as it is. There are storms that will drive you towards rocky shores, but there's also a safe harbor. There's hope. That is true. You may not like the painting. It may not be aesthetically pleasing or something you'd hang on your wall, but it's something worth praising. People aren't paintings. They deserve much more thought and attention. Your internal critic will just want to say, do you like what they do, yes or no? You should at least ask, is what they are doing true? But let's not stop with what you should at least do. You should also be loving. 1 Corinthians 13 says that it doesn't matter how right you are, if it's not loving, you might as well stop talking and start crashing symbols in front of their face. A loving comment is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful. It's not self-seeking. It's not rude. It's not arrogant. It's not born from irritation. It's not based on a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. Before you speak, read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. If what you're about to say does not check off all of those boxes, don't say it. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of courage to live out your God-given creativity. Respect that in the people around you. People don't need 140 character rebukes. They need someone to walk with. The last part of what I just read is love never ends. When you walk with people, when you jump down into the arena with them, you'll not only change them, but the world around them. We're all connected. So if you, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to be involved with someone's life change, know that that will not only affect them, but their home, their friends, their office, their neighborhood, their city. It will, in some small way, change culture. But more on that next time.
This has been a production of FathomMag.com. To find out more and find amazing articles, poetry, and short stories, go to FathomMag.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.